Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. Happy to be with RR member Amy Lane for a discussion about a wide range of topics, uh, especially focused on trauma and healing, psychedelic psychotherapy, spirituality, perhaps grief. So as we start, why don't you um, why don't you let us know who Amy Lane is? Hi, Piers. Thanks for having me. Um, it's an honor to be here. And these are topics that are just so relevant right now. Um, so much healing that needs to be done. Um, Amy Lane is uh, someone who had was high on her ACEs score, early childhood trauma. Um, adverse experiences. If you don't know what that is, it's the adverse childhood experience score. Um, and so I grew up in a very unstable home. I was the youngest of three. And that trauma, early childhood trauma followed me through my life. Um, I ran away at 16, never went back, and really had no resources to deal with um, any of the, the trauma and grief that I was carrying, just kind of muddled through, thought this is just what life is, you know, school of hard knocks, and you just, you just keep going. And it wasn't until uh, the breakup of my 30-year marriage where it all came crashing down and all the trauma bubbled to the surface and <clears throat> I was forced to deal with so many experiences in my past that had gone uh, unhealed and tried traditional therapy, talk therapy, really didn't work um, or didn't, yeah, it wasn't really getting to the core of what my issues were. And I did a lot of research on my own and I found MAPS, which is um, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. It's maps.org, if anyone's interested in looking up their work. And what they've been doing, well, the first thing that struck me when I looked into the work they were doing was they had a category of PTSD that they called treatment-resistant PTSD which and right away I was thinking I fit into that category because I had done so many spiritual practices, mindfulness meditation, um, so many contemplative practices, talk therapy, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, which is the eye movement, uh, desensitization. 
and reprocessing and you know on and on and on the only thing that i hadn't done and really refused was pharmaceuticals to treat anxiety and depression and ptsd something in me said don't go there do not go down that road and i'm not saying that you know that that applies to everyone i'm just saying this is this was my own journey so when i saw the research that they were doing um, for treatment resistant PTSD or complex PTSD, I was really hooked and I looked into their research. Mm -hmm. Can I just interrupt you? Sure. Um, complex PTSD and treatment resistance are one and the same? No, there's uh, PTSD and then complex PTSD is more um, developmental trauma. Right. PTSD itself can be, you know, single event trauma. Um, so they're not one and the same. And the, the treatment resistant isn't actually a, I'm not sure it's an actual diagnosis, but it was just used to describe someone with, with PTSD symptoms who had gone through traditional therapies. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was looking at their, their data and they were, their trials with MDMA were having really significant results. So they were getting 60% and higher, up to 68% of uh, participants in their, in their studies were showing that they no, no longer qualified as having PTSD. 68% after 12 months. Wow. Uh, and these were people who had suffered PTSD for an average of 17 years. So after three treatments, they were getting 68%, um, no longer fitting the diagnosis, and they didn't need to stay on medication. And that was three treatments in the course of a year with a lot of integration in between right so when we talk about psychedelic psychotherapy it really is psychotherapy it's not just you know they give you mdma and you aren't assisted in processing what comes up it's a one-on-one -on -one, very specified treatment it's in phase two phase three trials right now through maps um, so looking for FDA approval to become a treatment because it's a, it's a schedule one drug. So it's not available except in these trials. Well, it is, but anyway, they're going for FDA approval and they're training therapists to do the actual work uh, alongside the participants. So it's very different I call it like there's eyes closed and eyes open psychedelic um, journeys that you can do, you know, recreational eyes open out in nature with a bunch of friends, which I have never done, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, I had never done a psychedelic in my life up until this time. Um, a couple of years ago when I, when I pursued this. And for, um, and for our audience, specifically this audience, you don't really, you don't identify as an addict and you don't really have a drug history of, of any sort prior to that. 
Okay, so going back, um, yeah, so alcohol was my, my drug of choice early on when I was very young. Um, by the time I was 18, I was straight. But I had a real stint with alcohol in my teenage years. But again, there weren't, there, there weren't really resources at the time available to me or maybe there were but it was it just wasn't really mainstream at all mm -hmm. um, well, it sounds like you didn't even identify yourself as suffering from trauma until to what age did you start really wrestling with this idea that that, that may be what's going on well i had symptoms all through my marriage all through even as a teenager um I was almost mute at one point. Um, I had a friend who used to tease me by doing fake sign language to me because I was, <laughs> I would not talk. And um, I mean, it's funny now, but I was extremely traumatized, um, but just didn't, I had no language for that. No, there were no one around me was saying, you might want to get some help. Um, I just muddled through. I knew I, I turned from alcohol early on because it literally destroyed my family and something in me, maybe cause I was the youngest was able to say, wait a minute, which this is why I ran away from home as well. It was like, if I stay in this, I will die. That was clear to me. Um, it was safer for me at 16 to have my best friend drop me off on the New York State Thruway and hitchhike to God knows where than it was to go home. And alcohol did kill my family, killed them all young. Um, my sister was 35, my mother was 49, um, my dad hung in till 60. My brother, I never saw again after, you know, my sister's funeral was the last time I saw him. And um, so it, it, it registered early on with me that it was going to kill me. I still, I still went back and forth with it for quite a while in those teenage years. Um, but then it, it got to the point where I thought, maybe I should stay alive rather than go down that hole. Mm -hmm. That was hard. I was suicidal. I had a plan. Um, and maybe I should tell this story too, because um, this was a huge turning point for me when in that 15, 16 year old phase, um, very desperate, very much suicidal, and someone, a person in my life said to me one day, you know, maybe you should pray. And I thought, hmm. I forgot about that. I forgot you could do that. I was raised Catholic, um, which I have some funny stories about uh, going to church as a young kid. Um, but I did. I went home that day and I, I think I got on my knees because I thought, that was what you were supposed to do. 
And I said, my prayer was more of a threat than anything. (laughs) I said, okay, God, if you're out there, you better do something. Because if you don't, I will. And I meant that I would kill myself. And in that very moment, in that very moment, I got this incredible feeling, sensation of peace that came over me like a blanket. Um, And I heard, or a thought was formulated in my psyche um, that wasn't, I I couldn't say it was from me exactly. Uh, And the, what I heard was the thought that I had was um, the future will take care of itself. And it was so powerful. And looking back, I think, you know, developmentally, I'm not sure I had really the capacity to, to even think about a future. Um, In that moment, I did, I, didn't really think I wanted a future. I was suicidal. And yet that message, the future will take care of itself, gave me the courage to eventually, that's when I started to make my plan to run away. Mm. And it gave me the courage to do that. Mm. And, you know, a lot of psychologists will say, well, that you had this psychotic break and that's why whatever, you know, but it was a very visceral embodied experience. I felt the peace. I had the thought it changed my life. That was a, that was the turning point for me at 16. I can't do this. I will die. Mm -hmm. So the trauma was at a level where, you know, it, it forced me into that place. And then, And then I really didn't deal with any of it until the ending of my marriage. So just getting back, did you even identify yourself as suffering from trauma prior to the ending of the marriage? Absolutely not. No, I didn't have language for it. I didn't consider myself, you know, I, I, I put together a pretty good life. Um, so a lot of the symptoms went underground. You know, I raised three kids. Um, I was active in the community. I was a pastor for 30 years. Um, I was an athletic coach. I did educational consulting. I started nonprofits for drug and alcohol um, um, awareness around drug and alcohol awareness. Um, so I had, I was pretty together mm. on the surface. And then when the, the marriage fell apart, all, all the childhood trauma came along with it. So was that an abrupt thing or was it an amplification of symptoms in hindsight that were there before? The symptoms were there. They, they would come out once in a while. Um, I had symptoms of, you know, where don't leave me alone kind of thing. Um, you know, if my, if 
if we were walking together or skiing or doing some kind of activity, it was like, I have to, I have to know everyone's close enough, mm-hmm. you know, no abandonment, yeah. no rejection, that kind of thing. So that was always very heightened in me. Um, but it really wasn't until, you know, as the marriage was falling apart, the symptoms were becoming more and more predominant, more and more uncontrollable. So fear, lots of fear, lots of flight. Um, When I felt threatened, I felt the compulsion to literally jump out of my seat and run. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, things that just really didn't make rational sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Were you dissociative? Very much dissociative. Mm -hmm. So here's here's a good story around the dissociation. Two and a half years I worked with a therapist after the marriage ended. In those two and a half years, um, I worked with a woman who was Jungian and I could not look her in the eye. That's part of the Jungian when they're like, (laughs) yeah. Exactly. (laughs) We tried everything. This is where the treatment resistant part comes in too. We tried EMDR, we tried breathing, we tried, you know, meditation, we did the CBT, uh, we did DBT, we did so many different things. And after I did psychedelic psychotherapy, which she was not thrilled about, um, and that's, we can come back to that. But I called her after I did the therapy and I said, I'd really like to meet with you. I've done this thing. And she agreed and we went back and we used to sit side by side uh, because I couldn't, after a certain point, I could not handle her sitting across from me. So we sat side by side and she started talking and asking me some things and I said you know what and I reached over and I took her hand which I never would have done in a million years and I was looking away from her and I I held her hand and I said you know here's something I just have to tell you this is something I've wanted to do for a really long time and I shifted in my seat and I turned towards her and I held her eyes and we you know were in that gaze full-on eye contact, tears going down both our cheeks. I was like, I'm coming back. I'm Mm -hmm. coming back. And that was after one treatment. Mm -hmm. It was really powerful. Mm -hmm. So could we just talk a little bit about the little period leading up to the decision to do it? Everything from, you know, where therapy was at that point, how the name of this person or the possibility of doing this work came to you. If there's any serendipity or anything weird there, that'd be great. And just the little, the dynamic leading up to it. Okay, so I came upon the MAPS work um, on my own, which was a little weird, actually. 
that all of a sudden I became interested in doing psychedelics. It really hooked me. And I don't know honestly where that came from other than I was studying everything um, around trauma. Um, I had read Body Keeps the Score, the Peter Levine, a lot of his work, um, just somatic experiencing, all kinds of things I was studying. And the psychedelic therapy started to come onto the, onto the scene. I, I threw it out to my therapist at the time. And I was like, can you please check out this work? And, and she, that was in, a, in an email. Or, and she didn't get back to me. And then I brought it up in a couple of sessions. And it really fell flat. And that happened for about a year. Every so often, I would bring it up. And I'm, I'm really interested in this. Then, um, at did you one, continue researching it during that time? I like did. Yeah. I continued to research it, and I continued to believe that that was, held a key for me. I could just sense it inside. And she had said to me, of course, I mean, our therapy was not going well. She's like, I think you need to go somewhere. And I said, I can't. I can't afford it. I can't take the time. It, it just won't work. But clearly she was saying, I can't help you. Mm-hmm. And this came up a couple of times. And I, and I said to her, look, I know you can't help me. But I need to keep coming. I need one person that I can just sort of fall apart with um, every week. Mm-hmm. I had, I should say, I, when the marriage fell apart, I moved out of state. I left everything. So I moved to a new place. I knew no one. I had this therapist and I'm trying to put a life together. So I needed the one person. I really needed her, even though it wasn't going anywhere. I was like, just hold on, hold on to me until I figure this out. And um, so I continued to do the research I had met a young woman here who we really connected with. And she said to me one day randomly, she said, do you want to do some MDMA? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> like that's what I've been studying. And I feel like this is a key for me. So she said, I know somebody who's doing it um, therapeutically, a therapist. Um, and even though, it was underground. She said, you call him, here's his number and whatnot. Um, I had tried, I have, I should tell you, I tried to get into the trials that MAPS was running, but because I wasn't living in Colorado, which is where they were administering the, the trials at the time, I couldn't get in. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how do I move there? Can I take six months off and do these treatments? And it just wasn't going to work. So this friend of mine suggested this person that ended up not working out. But in the meantime, what I did was I said to my therapist, I found someone, this is what I want to do. Will you work with them? She couldn't, she just couldn't. She, and she said, ethically, I can't, I'm not trained. And what I really wanted her to do was the integration right. with me. I said, look, I'll, I'll find the, the facilitator. 
you, I, you don't have to know anything about what I'm doing, but when I come back, can, can you work with me? Cause you know, my trauma story so well. And she said, I can't. And it, it was really crushing for me. It was really devastating. So she basically said, I can't see you anymore if you're going to do this. Wow. Yeah. And I, I argued. That's I was, an ethical tangle right there. She said it was, you know, the ethical piece. And then she even said um, one day, she's, she said, you know, I printed out all the ethic liability in my licensure and I I meant to bring it in for you to read, but I forgot it. And I was like, don't, you know, I'm not going to read it. Right. Um, so she said, I can't see you anymore. And I was not happy. I argued with her. I said, don't tell me you don't have clients who go home and, and do, you know, Coke or all kinds of stuff on the weekend and then come back to you. And you continue to see them like what, I'm being totally upfront with you. And she, she just said, I can't. And then later came back to me and said, after I had done the treatment, she said, okay, well, I'll see you, but you can't pay me. And that's when I, you know, I went back that time and, and we had the eye contact. Mm -hmm. And then she, she got more curious about it. I bet she did. <laughs> yes, she did. Um, but, you know, Pierce, it was, it was really hard because at that point when she said, I can't see you anymore, I was at my most vulnerable. I'm thinking, right. I'm going to go do psychedelics, which I've never done in my life. This is underground. I'm taking a huge risk. I have no support. And it took the most courage other than when I left home at 16, the courage that it took to follow what my heart was telling me that this is going to help you. Cause I had done so much research around it and the, the pharmaceuticals, which she had said to me many times, you know, I think you need to take something. And I was like, I just can't do it. I just cannot do it. Um, and part of that was because of the research I had done around the pharmaceuticals as well, PTSD. It's just kind of scary what they give you yeah. and the side effects. I will say that my three kids, my three adult kids were like, go for it, <laughs> go for it, do whatever you have to do. Yeah. And they saw, they saw I was not the person, this was really hard on them. I, I was not the person that I had been prior to the divorce. And so they were very supportive, um, which thank God, because they were the only ones who could really support me in that. And, and I will say too that uh, for a while, so my therapist went back to her supervision group and said, look, I have this client who is doing this psychedelic psychotherapy. I'm no longer seeing her, but this is happening. And then that group got all interested in psychedelic psychotherapy. And then I felt like a guinea pig because oh, wow. she said, look, I'll see you, but you won't pay me. And I thought, well, 
is this so, so you can go back to your supervision group and be like you're the one therapist who has direct access to somebody who's doing right. this makes you look good you know that didn't feel He's great funny. yeah it didn't it didn't feel great either um so the the people that i worked with um that i ended up working with um one of them had been a uh, a clinician on the phase 2 trials through maps and was no longer with maps but knew that protocol really well and so that made me feel a lot you know quite a bit of reassurance so that was helpful and they were I did follow the protocol pretty much which is once every 4 to 6 weeks you have a treatment. So I did that um and I did that four times with that. Mhm. Mm yeah. And they tweaked it a little bit. You said them. Are there multiple parties here? Well, it was a a male and a female which maps recommends having a male and female um practitioner therapist team to work with each individual participant and that that's getting tweaked here and there they're still working out like what's the best setting um therapeutically um because people come with all kinds of issues around gender sure yeah you know. so i i and ended up working with one on one with the woman of this team and felt comfortable with that and it was also more affordable to have one therapist rather than two um and and we tweaked the the so maps works specifically specifically with MDMA what i did was MDMA with psilocybin So those were the two um substances that I used every time. That was per the recommendation of the therapist facilitator? Yes, because they had done this work outside of maps. So they had done this underground work for a while and felt like the MDMA really calms down the amygdala. so that you can look at the traumatic material but the the psilocybin the mushrooms allow you to go deeper into the trauma so mm. it kind of they just both recommended to me that that protocol was working for them for really getting at the root especially with complex PTSD so it wasn't single event PTSD you know a, a a war situation a car crash a rape this was like really getting through the weeds of preverbal trauma right. Right. it wasn't easy it wasn't pleasant um it's not a panacea but this is up and coming therapy we haven't changed pharmaceutically meds haven't changed for 50 years and this work was being done and studied in the 50s and 60s and having great results bill w do you know about his oh yeah 
I sure do. So he wanted to give LSD at all his AA meetings. And then that's right when it got shut down and became schedule one. So, so Stan Groff too at the same time. Absolutely. So, so they were, yeah, it was showing a lot of promise and then it just got really shut down hard. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm one of the earlier ones maybe who's done it in a therapeutic setting. There, you know, there are a lot of places. It's it's going to be a bit of the wild west for a while. Um, sure. Who knows what's going to happen with the FDA and big pharma? There does seem to be more maturity now than the earlier 1960s iteration, though, on the part of the providers and even the consumers are more sophisticated. Even the recreational ones are more sophisticated. Yeah. yeah, I never used it recreationally. Yeah, good for you. So can we talk a little bit about the administration? Were they both substances simultaneously? Yeah, there was... Um, I took the MDMA first with, um, with the psilocybin, and then about 45 minutes to an hour later, maybe it was about an hour and a half later, I took a booster of both. Mm -hmm. in, in all the sessions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were the sessions, uh, we'll save the last one for a separate um, digression, but were the sessions uh, experientially, phenomenologically similar for you, or were they very different? I'd say there was a progression. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, there was, so the first one kind of opened up the can of worms where it was, it became really clear what I had been suspecting that there was um, early childhood sexual abuse, like pre-verbal. Um, and then that became pretty clear, pretty evident in, in the journey itself, the first one. And this is where the integration is absolutely key. So I came back from that journey. Um, <clears throat> I had one schedule, two scheduled integration calls with the therapist who administered and facilitated for me. That's not enough when you come to realize, you know, you've suffered early right. sexual abuse. And then I had my therapist here who said she wouldn't see me. So I, I came back and I was in rough shape after that first one. Cause I thought, well, now what do I do? What do I do with this? Um, that was a tricky time. That was a tricky time. One of the things that was suggested to me by my facilitator was to microdose psilocybin and actually sent me home with some and I had forgotten about it. And in one of our follow-up calls, she said to me, are you taking the microdoses? I was like, oh, you mean that, <laughs> those capsules you gave me? And she said, yes. And as soon as I started doing that, I, start, I felt better, like instantly felt better. 
And so there's a whole science around microdosing that is just emerging now too. I can only tell you anecdotally and from my own experience that that, that lifted a heavy weight off of me right away. That was really helpful. Do you feel that after the first session, despite the fact that you're in rough waters, did you become less symptomatic or did things, did you feel, I mean, obviously you must have felt a tremendous shift to have that experience with your former therapist. Tremendous shift. So you're in, you're in rough waters, but there's also hope and relief in that. Yes. So something shifted. Um, I don't know all the neuroscience of it, but I know <clears throat> even from EMDR, what happens is that stuck material, once it's brought to consciousness, it can then be processed right. on you know, both hemispheres of your brain. And so I, I did feel the shift. I did feel less threatened. I felt less triggered. Um, less defensive, let's say, where I wasn't uh, hyper aroused all the time. I wasn't hyper vigilant all the time or to the degree that I had been. Mm -hmm. So, but what I did have was grief. Mm. I had grief in understanding what had happened to me. And I had been grieving for a long time. In most of my therapy sessions were intense grieving. And I wasn't even sure in the beginning that that's what it was. Um, <clears throat> it took me a long time before I could name it. And I was reading um, Mirabai Starr's mm. uh, Caravan of No Despair. Mm. I'm not sure if you've heard of her. I just heard of her because of a fellowship I got, and she's one of the players in there, yeah. Yeah, she's amazing. So I was reading her book, and she was talking about having lost her daughter. Mm. And, and on one of the pages, she described grief in the exact language that I was experiencing. And I was like, oh, I'm not crazy. I'm grieving because I, I just thought, what is this emotion just crushing me day in and day out, this sadness? Um, and it was grief. And then, I, and then I learned it was tied to the early childhood. Right. But what the psychedelics did was they brought out all the subconscious material, the unconscious material that I couldn't get in a talk therapy session. Mm -hmm. It was never going to be processed in a therapy session. And you think that mostly because it was just not accessible? Not accessible. That's right. Because that's what the, the psyche does, is it split, splits off this material that it's just too overwhelming. It would overwhelm the nervous system. During the sessions themselves, were you processing anything verbally or did you go in and out of that or was it largely somatic or? Yeah, all of it. 
It was all of it. Um, one of my journeys was nothing really visual, but all somatic, excruciating pain for like six hours. It's totally in my body. It was neck, shoulders, uh, pelvic, hips. You know, it was, it was a release. My body was releasing a lot of things that had come up. In, in the earliest one, the first one, um, so you're, you're aware, you're conscious, you're going kind of in and out, but you can verbal, I verbalized a lot of what I was seeing and feeling. Um, and my guide was there the whole time. And this is the beauty of the psychedelic psychotherapy where I wasn't in a group. I was attended to by one person for six, seven hours where she just had me the whole time. And I could just allow whatever was coming to come. At one point, um, you know, at one point I remember her asking me, I said, there's something, there's something not good going on. And she said, ask your inner healer what that is. And the image that came to me right away was um, a crime scene. Mm. There was a police car, there were lights, it was a little bit over there. Mm. And, and she, she was kind of suggesting that I go check it out. She said, why don't you investigate? And I couldn't. I was like, I'm not going over there. And so looking back and doing integration work, I understood that, you know, my psyche was trying to tell me right, right then and there, you know, there was a, a crime scene. And it took many other sessions before I was willing to really investigate what that was. But the psyche speaks in symbols. Sure. And it's just amazing what can come up. The, what I feel so strongly about is the one-on-one. -on -one. I, th I think the set and setting that Groff talked about is key. You know, your intention going in, the safety of the setting itself, like if I needed food or I needed help going to the bathroom or I needed to sit up or lie down or whatever I needed, that was all taken care of. My physical... Um, safety was secure in the setting so that was that also allows you to go deeper because you know there's somebody there at all times um yeah and then you know and there were some really beautiful things that i saw too and over the course of these treatments, I was able, it feels like I was able to take the puzzle pieces of my life, all the split off stuff that I couldn't make fit together. Um, the puzzle pieces started to come together. So a reintegration. And because of the, <clears throat> the lack of uh, integrative resources, after the first session, did you supplement those with each session? Did you start doing something different between sessions after that? 
Not really. Um, I might have accessed my facilitator a couple extra times in between just because I had lost my local support. Um, I have a good friend in Vermont who... <laughs> you sure do. <laughs> ...who walked with me through all of this. Um, and she has a great depth, as you know. And so she was really, really helpful. Did you stay with the microdosing through the whole course of it? I did. Um, I did. Less and less. You know, initially that first month, um, I, th I microdosed pretty much every day for a month, which is not the standard protocol. It's usually a few days on, a few days off. Um, and then I just did it more um, as, an, as needed after my second session. I cut back on the microdosing. And now I microdose, you know, here and there. Mm -hmm. Are you presently working with somebody in integration now? Um, not specifically, not professionally. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Not professionally. So we have to talk about the toad. <laughs> I, I left that out. <laughs> well, we, we, we're setting this up dramatically. Okay. <laughs> Do you have a specific question or? No, just maybe describe what the toad is and the introduction of the why of it perhaps and then as best you can, what was the experience like? And why, why did the, the facilitator think it was important? Okay, so leading into all of this, I should, I should really say I was really terrified that I might have a psychotic break. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that had been fed into me by my therapist who was really afraid of this whole process. Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, you're too unstable. And I knew my my classmate OD'd and right. all this kind of stuff. But I was unstable. I was unsure. I, I was scared when I began this process, even though I had done the research and I had done um, a lot of uh, intake with the facilitator who assessed me and came up with, I was okay, I would be okay to do this. Um, doing psychedelics was out of my wheelhouse. This was not, this was coloring way outside the lines for me. Um, so the first couple of sessions went well. I remember it was the second session. I think that was the really somatic one where I was struggling with so much pain, physical pain. And my facilitator said to me, would you like to do some toad, some 5-MeO-DMT. And I, I had researched it, I had read about it, and right away I was like, nope, mm-mm, I was too scared. Um, the fourth session, we incorporated it. 
And we did that at the end. So we did what's called stacking. So we did the MDMA, did the psilocybin, and then towards the very end um, of the psilocybin journey, we did the toad. I did the toad. So it's it smoked. Um, it's from the Sonoran Desert Toad. It's the venom from the Sonoran Desert Toad that gets dried and becomes flaky, and you you smoke it. And it's really fast onset, 10 seconds. Um, it lasts about 25 minutes. And um, I, it's extremely powerful. And I felt as though I, I purged is what happened. And it felt like something it, not like a purge I had ever done. It felt prior to this in the other sessions. Yes. Okay. Every session I purged. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of goes along with the, especially the psilocybin. It's very common. Most people do. And it's also part of this healing process. Um, so with the toad, I just, it felt like such a somatic experience for me. It was not visual. It wasn't, it was really in my body. And it really felt like my body was releasing something that needed to be released that bypassed my cognition. Mm -hmm. Really, really powerful. I felt like I was digging out or cleaning out uh, psychic material from my body. I, it's hard to put into words. Very powerful. And then I did another session subsequently where we started with Toad and then went on to do the others. And my experience is very different than some people um, in that I don't have a lot of recollection, especially the second time I did Toad. Um, I don't have a lot of, it was so somatic mm -hmm. that I didn't, I don't recall like a message or a vision or, and, and I know that for some people, and maybe as my healing goes on, if I do that again, um, you know, it's, it's the God molecule. It's the, you have this ecstatic unitive entities and the whole nine yards. Yeah. yeah. And I really want to stress for anybody who's considering doing this, um, you know, it's not the one and done. It's not the unitive be all, end all, and then everything's good. This is hard psychological work. Um, the, the medicine facilitates the opening of the psyche, but then you have to do the work. You have to deal with it. Um, and I've gotten some you know, some beautiful images, but it's not a, oh, sorry, lots of noise outside. Hold on one sec. Um, I just paused for a second. Okay. So it's, it's really a, um, it's a commitment to well-being. There's hard work involved. Uh, I think a lot of, I think the, 
The psychedelic community can portray this as a, as a panacea. Mm-hmm. And then you trip one time and you're, you know, you're one with God and then everything's good. No, it's not how it works. Yeah, that's one of my concerns about it. Um, I also feel like a fair people, number of people I dialogue with, they privilege psychedelic experiences in a spiritual sense above things that may be a little more prosaic, but equally, if not more profound, like empathy or compassion or love. Um, so part of the reason why I really wanted to interview. Yeah. So on that note, I think the, the most profound healing that I have gotten from psychedelics was the self-love that I could finally access. I had such self-loathing because I felt like I was bad. Everything was my fault. My, you know, my sister died, it was my fault. My parents died, what, what, anything that happened It was all my fault as a little, little, little girl. And I, that, that then turned on me, that anger that I had from the outer circumstances of everything falling apart, I turned on myself. And it wasn't until um, one of my sessions specifically where my little girl, that part of me that I had, so split off, condemned, hated, loathed, wanted to kill. She came back out and she came to me and was reintegrated with me. That's the number one healing that I got because you really can't function in this world in a loving, compassionate way unless you have that for yourself. And it's really hard to find when you have a history of abuse. Yeah, I think for a lot of people suffering trauma, especially a lot of addicts, um, self-love is almost, um, it almost sounds like fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, like it's not, it's placemat material. It's, you know, it's not, yeah. I get it. It's not accessible. Yeah. Not accessible. Um, I, I had a really specific incident with that where I had a dream before a medicine session. And in the dream, so I'm not on medicine, but you know, it's, your psyche is always at work. Um, in the dream, I killed a man. And it was, I mean, I killed a man. And in the dream, I went back to where this man was living. He had a a section of my house in the dream where his suite was. And in the dream, I went back and I said, I've never actually been in his section. I want to go see what it looks like. And I went in and I said, oh, my God, I can't believe how much space his area is taking up in my house (laughs) right 
And then, I mean, that alone, you could do a lot of work around, right? So this man had taken up all this space in my psyche. I killed the man and then I journeyed the next day. And that's when my little girl showed up. The wow. piece of meat that I could not love. She showed up and I said to her, it's true, he's dead. He's never coming back. And she came out and in my vision, in the journey, grabbed onto my leg and we've been working together ever since. Huge, huge psychic shift. I had tried in therapy for so long to get that little girl into the picture and there was no way she was never coming out, never, until that man was dead. So that's the kind of psychic material that comes up that is just buried so deep, Piers, that you can't, you can't, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make it happen. You can't, it's just so hard to get access. I think breath work gives that access as well without the use of substance because it's tricky for people with addiction, even though these substances are not addictive. They're mm. really rough. Like you don't, they don't make you feel good necessarily. No, and you know, in, in the RR community, you have people who will tell you that without those substances, they couldn't make the next breakthrough, the psychedelics. You have also people who say that mm, it just brought some element of chaos back into the picture, which mm -hmm. was too reminiscent of how they used to live. But the other thing that I don't think gets talked about, and the only person I've ever seen really talk about it, whose work I don't really care for that much, but on this point, he's really interesting, a man named John Lash. And John Lash talks about us culturally having a deep fear and hostility towards both these kinds of experiences, but also he really relates the fear and hostility towards the plant spirits to patriarchy, to um, the hatred of the feminine, the um, dissociation with the earth. And so he says that, you know, when things like, like I've had trials and tribulations around this with the recovery community, his words ring true because and I believe me, I love the 12 steps, but it's very spirit at the expense of soul, very masculine at the expense of feminine, very rational, very prescriptive. Um, and something like this, which raises, you know, feeling chaos, the chathonic, all that it, you know, there's a tension here. Um, so part of ARR really is getting spirit and soul back in dialogue and not equating the two or neglecting soul at the expense of it. I guess one thing I'd really like to ask you is you have this long history of spiritual seeking that predates decades before this, right? In hindsight, do you believe that you were doing that in a sort of unconscious way to find healing? A hundred percent. 
I had that initial experience when I was 16. The future will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. And it was like, what the fuck was that? I need to find out what that was. Right. As I was kind of piecing together a life, there was still this very strong desire to understand what that was in that moment. Because something very real happened to me. And that's when I really got into my Christian heritage and was in a contemplative community for 25 years. Wow. Yeah. And did a lot of deep centering, meditation, uh, ceremony, sacrament, um, study. Absolutely, that seeking was for healing. It was for the love. You know, here Christianity was holding out this unconditional love idea. And I was looking for that. Um, But I couldn't even really get that until I could love myself. Mm -hmm. I was never going to receive it. I couldn't. But I would imagine there were some high water marks in that those years that led you further and further in ministry and other spiritual practices and such. Absolutely. Um, I had a lot of mystical experiences along the way through, through prayer, mostly in, in times of prayer and meditation, did a lot of silent retreats. Um, yeah, I could get there. I could get there. Um, and that seemed to be the, the best that, was offered at the time. It was the best I had found as far as accessing those places, those realms of unitive one with God, or at least communing in some way with Mm -hmm. God, getting direction, feeling as though I was being led. Um, Those were powerful experiences. Very powerful. And, and then as I went along in my studies, spiritual studies, I realized that, that those threads were through all the major religions. Mm-hmm. You know, the God consciousness. Um, were just different languages, different um, vestitures of really the same messaging. Um, and then, I, so I got very ecumenical, and then I got very interspiritual and interfaith. Um, and then just more broadly universal, I guess, in my theology. And yet, there was something that wasn't being touched. Yeah. My own psyche was just not okay. Yeah. I ask you these things because it only came out of a dialogue in my reading of his work that we've talked about, this writer named Jason Horsley. And um, very involved with trauma and spirituality. And he pointed out that, you know, we've gotten to a point where modern life is so stressful and inherently traumatic for so many of us that the, the idea of spirituality, it's a little different in your case, but the idea of spirituality is intimately linked 
to healing from trauma. So if you're coming from a recovery community, especially a 12-step community, you know, that's, that's explicit. Mm-hmm. I can remember reading early on in my 12-step time, I read The Varieties of Religious Experience by James, and he talks about people that are once born and people that are twice born. And once born are people that grow up in a tradition and they go through all these milestones and they integrate it and so on. Twice born are, you know, the alcoholism and the combat and the divorce and so on and such. And I can remember reading that and going, who the fuck are these once born people? <laughs> Nobody's talking about. I mean, that's like, that's television, right? But what Horsley says is that, well, and this is kind of me running with what he says, is that, you know, when cultures are integrated, especially when they have some sort of resonance with the earth, mm-hmm. Spiritual, you know, a lot of those cultures don't even have words for religion because cooking, hunting, warfare, harvesting, it's all spiritual. And it's really interesting to think that we don't even think in those terms anymore. That the the very banalities of my life or the small things can be, you know, fully integrated. Instead, I have to go to the spiritual to get some healing so I can deal with the mess of the world. Um, so that's just something that I'm, I'm it's still sort of, you know, percolating, but it's really getting stronger all the time. I love that you brought that up because what one of the things I've learned through this and, and come to really extremely value is the Christian tenet and insistence on incarnation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that has just blossomed for me, that the spiritual experience is in this body, and it's all happening in this body. And all the years of dissociation that I had and all the spiritual bypassing that I had done, it, the, what the medicine did was it brought me back to my body. And the healing is, it's all in here. And this is a necessary vehicle that we reside in right now. In this realm, we're not getting out of it, you know, no. unless we die. And so how to integrate, how to make body, mind, and spirit one, is the is the key as far as i can tell like actually living in the body actually tasting your food breathing feeling you know heat cold pain pleasure um why COVID is so difficult is we can't touch each other Mm -hmm. it's not happening we're wired for that Mm -hmm. um this is, I feel like in, we're here, we come here, this is our chance to be embodied. For some reason, the way this realm is set up with the densities that it has, it's important for us to be embodied. So important that, you know, Jesus himself, even before he was enchristed, let's say, you know, was embo- it's just the embodiment that's so important. Right. Can't get away from it. Yeah. 
trauma lives in the body. The body does keep the score, you know, as Van der Kolk wrote. Um, addiction happens in the body. Yeah, ironically, it happens in the body and it's this futile attempt to escape the body. Right, which is what the Eastern traditions tend to do. It's all about transcendence. Yeah. And I've come back to a very incarnational um, spiritual view. Um, mm. that it's Which ironically enough is not only elective monotheisms, but it's also shamanic traditions. Absolutely, what you were so talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And it includes the ecology, the ecosystem that we're in. We're all connected in this in this physical realm. It's a, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, and I think the more we can embrace that, the closer we get to ourselves. Yeah. You know. So, some final takeaways. I <laughs> guess I would like to know. You know, I'm not, I'm, just for the audience's sake, when I first met Amy and heard about her and listened to her story some, there was a part of me um, that was just sort of waiting for the shoe to drop. <laughs> because the healing is so sort of beyond what I've encountered with other people that I thought, well, you know, it'll, it'll crash land at some point. And, and it really hasn't. And so could you just give us a sense of, I don't know, your own words, where you are now, where you want to go with this, how, how, how you would compare this to anything else you've ever experienced? Kind of a final. Mm-hmm. Well, I think your skepticism is real, first of all. Um, And that's why I'm excited about the research that's being done into these modalities. Go to maps.org, you'll see they're working with so much good stuff. But the the therapeutic setting is key. You can't just go off in the woods and eat a bunch of mushrooms and get this kind of healing. You You need integration, 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 integration. You have to work with the material that comes up. It's not a one and done. Um, So I want to see psychedelic psychotherapy become a thing that's widely, widely, widely available to people. Um, There's a challenge. uh, What's his name? Ferris. Tim Ferris just did a matching $10 million to MAPS. MAPS is privately funded, which is part of the reason why their work is so good. He did a, his use of psychedelics and the healing he's gotten has been so important that he's putting 10 million towards this research. So I want to see it go forward into the mainstream and be available to traumatize people who don't have the means, who don't have access and and the one-on-one is key, or the two-on-one, right? Um, and this is going to develop. We're going to get better at how to administer these things and, you know, train therapists. There aren't enough trained therapists right now for the need that's out there. But here's the thing, Piers. If in three or four or even six sessions, you can 
you can go from having a diagnosis of PTSD to no longer qualifying for that diagnosis, where you need no further medication. That's why big pharma, this is going to kill them. Right. 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 So, I mean, I take no medication. None. And I've got my life back. I have my life back. I can function. I'm not, I don't have that, I used to call it the spinner in my stomach. I was 102 pounds. You know, to be free of those shackles is is priceless. So this is work that has to go forward. It is going forward, but it has to be done in a really educated way. It has to be done really intentionally. And I'm not saying that in the future, only clinicians can be the one or should be the ones to offer this because there's really skilled people doing this work. But you have to do your homework too. Mm -hmm. You know, there's people who will take advantage of this. Oh, you want, you want somebody to sit for you for a session? I'll do it. And they're not, they're not, they haven't been there. You know, it's like a therapist. You can only take someone as far as you've gone yourself. Right. Or a sponsor. Enormous question of integrity. Totally. It's all, I mean, that's just a huge, huge piece. But the potential... And, and these are shamanic medicines. These have been used for thousands of years in the hands of experienced people. And the shamans originally were the ones who had gone to the underworld through physical suffering, psychological suffering, and the community would gather around them and go, here's a future healer. We need to hold them until they get their shit together. Just hold them. And then they're going to be our healers. And that's the, that's the lineage I feel I'm, I'm, I've been initiated into. Mm -hmm. I've been to the underworld and I came out and I can hold someone in that space. Mm -hmm. And if we had a community, large widespread community of people, and especially I'm going to say women to mm -hmm. do this work, we are the birthers. Yeah. We know that birth pain. That's right. I'm a midwife. I can bring someone through that because I've been there. And so this, this lean away from strictly cognitive, rational, into more heart space, yeah. intuitive, depth of emotion, like really allowing every emotion. We didn't even get into grief and rage and what that looks like when it's expressed. But to allow that is, it's medicine. Mm -hmm. It is medicine. It heals. Well, my hope is that we will have a future occasion to get into that. <laughs> I'll get myself steeled up for it <laughs> or, or, or super vulnerable for it. Um, <laughs> One or the other. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. Oh, thank you, Piers. Oh, it's my. really an honor. Oh, likewise. likewise. I love your work. It's amazing. Well, thank you. I think, uh, I think the community is going to be very interested in this. So. Awesome.
Be well, stay well, stay safe. Yes, you too. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.